Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Terry Pitar. Hi, I'm Terry Pattar. Welcome to this episode of the Jane's Podcast. I'm joined on this episode by Tim Marshall. Uh, Tim was former diplomatic editor and foreign correspondent for Sky News, uh, has been a journalist for over 30 years, and more recently has been the author of the best-selling Prisoners of Geography, which is a fantastic book that we're going to come on to talk about, and more recently, one of the follow-up books to it, The Power of Geography, uh, which we'll also talk to Tim about. So, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to have you on because, and I was really keen to talk to you because the books that you've written are the books that I would probably recommend most often to people, especially people in our sector, our industry, where I work with a lot of young analysts who come into the, their roles. Often they're asked to monitor and analyze what's going on in particular countries, particular parts of the world where they may have no prior knowledge of those areas. And I think the books that you've written are fantastic primers on understanding how those countries have developed in the way they have and so hence why i recommend them so often but before we come on to talk about the books i thought maybe it'd be useful to talk about your prior career in journalism and to find out a little bit more about sort of what led you to the point where you wanted to write the books and what actually initially led you into journalism in particular being a foreign correspondent a bit of luck, really. Um, before I go into that, thanks for that lovely introduction, uh, because I'm very aware that I'm in the presence of proper experts at James. No, seriously, you know, I mean, okay, it's a mutual loving society at the moment, <laughs> but, but, you know, I am a generalist. I am uh, essentially a hack with a journalist's view, you know, and we're often not proper experts. So it's really heartening to hear that the books have resonated in parts of your world as well, which, which is great. And I think I don't take the word primer as an insult, perhaps almost as a compliment, you know, because oh, I'm not definitely meant as a compliment. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I'm not pretending to be, you know, a, a proper expert. Sorry to answer your question. But I, I, I think no, I think that, but, but, yeah, but just on that, I think there's a real art and a real skill to making understandable for a non-expert audience something that is a deeply complex topic. And I think in, in, in each of the case studies that you present in your books, I think you've done that really well. I think that takes, you know, a journalist's eye because academics are a often cleverer and b far more knowledgeable about their subject, but through no fault of their own, through the pressures of work, they're often in silos. And when you're in the silo, it, it's often hard to see into the other silo and certainly how it connects with various silos. Whereas a journalist can do that sort of bird's eye view. Um, I got into journalism because I always wanted to, although you don't always get what you want so to <laughs> mangle a, a song line. Because I wanted to be um, a journalist from when I was a kid, from when I was maybe 12. But it didn't really seem possible or in, certainly didn't seem probable. Because I left school at 16 with no qualifications. Uh, I worked on building sites, painter and decorator, very, very poor one, not financially, well, both financially actually and, uh, and uh, in, in the skill set. But I always had this curiosity about the world, which was forged young, despite not being academic at school. I was struck by things such as the age, a tender age of nine, Martin Luther King's funeral on television and just thinking, well, what's all that about and wanting to know more about it. Seeing the first footage of, the, of Auschwitz when I was about 12, things like that just really struck a chord with me and made me curious about the world. And then through a very convoluted route, I managed to get three days work at LBC Radio, which turned into 30 years work. 
you know, overall, you know, I just managed through a bit of luck, a bit of knowing somebody uh, that I met who worked at LBC IRN who got me through that door. Yeah, you know, I mean, and I was lucky. There's a bit of hard work there as well, but I was lucky. <laughs> That's really interesting. But then what sort of sustained you through that career and, and what made you in particular want to develop some of the, into the, some of the directions that you went in? Because you went and covered conflicts in different places and you, you travel all around the world really didn't, within that job. And so... <laughs> I got paid the, for it. You got paid for it. <laughs> Amazing. Um, the fools. No. Immediately, I had very little interest in anything other than either football or foreign affairs. But of course, you know, you can't start a career as a foreign correspondent. You have to build up to it. And I actually started in sports. Well, I started as being the dog's body T-boy and then went into sports journalism, journalism on the sports desk and then managed to get across into a bit of news. And then I leapfrogged. I went to Paris. I just packed everything into a car and moved to Paris because LBC Iron didn't have a Paris correspondent. One of the jokes at the, mo at the time was that people, people kept on going over there and saying, I'll be your freelance over there and disappearing down the metro and they were never heard of again. <laughs> well, I was, oh, <laughs> and I should uh, repeat my, my chancer story. They did say to me, you do speak French, don't you? And I said, well, you don't think I'd be so stupid as to go to Paris without speaking French, which, of course, wasn't a lie. It was a question. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I went there and I was absolutely determined not to disappear down the metro. And so I think I did leapfrog a little bit because I had three years there, despite not really having any solid news journalism experience. But, you know, I made a fist of it. And then when I came back, I joined Sky as a junior reporter only on the home beat. But Sky was under-resourced, 24-hour news, big canvas on which to paint. So every now and again, you would be thrown, oh, just turn those pictures around you know, on a foreign story. And I think they very quickly realized that that's where my passion, where I was putting most things into. And so it, it took about three years before I got my first foreign, I think. But then once I had that, I was up and running and got more and more foreign jobs. And, uh, you know, it all just came together. That's fantastic. And then what led you on to deciding to write the books? There's a certain element there of, I guess, trying to understand what's going on in the world, which was part of your career anyway. But what made the decision for you to write? Oh, yeah, books? you alluded to what led in that direction. Uh, a number of things. One, I realized relatively early on, probably early 90s, the importance of geography in explaining the complexity uh, of the stories I was covering. I hasten to add, not as the determining factor, I'm not a determinist, but, you know, as a determining factor that was often missing. And I injected it into, into most of the work I did. And I enjoyed some of the writing that I did that newspapers would ask me to do and things like that. A number of things happened. One, I wouldn't say burnout, but I was pretty exhausted. Mm. After 9-11, I pretty much sprinted for 12, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, non-stop travel, pretty intense places often, very long hours. I don't think I was burnt out, but I do, I, I do think I was tired. I had a bit of Ill, Ill health as well. And then I, I, so I just thought timing is so important. And I didn't want to be one of those old bores, you know, chuntering around the newsroom saying, oh, it's not like it was in my day, which of course <laughs> is a blinding state of the obvious. Because yeah. Of course it wasn't. That was then and this is now. Be quiet. So I didn't want to be that guy. And I always made sure I said to the young journalists, now is your time. Now is the golden age. Don't believe, you know, I had a golden age. 
The people before me said, oh, we had the golden age. Well, you're going to have a golden age as well because it's a great job. So it was just time, you know, it was time to do something else. And I admit, I could hit lucky again. I'd written a terrific book about football chants called Dirty Northern Bar Stewards, which sold a few thousand. And it wasn't really about football chants. It was about Britain and its tribalism and its instincts and, and um, why we might like making fun of each other without being too unpleasant sometimes. And then I just said this idea of that we were prisoners of geography. Um, Was there a particular place where it occurred to you, actually, in this country? No, I do. I do. I do. Very visibly see the effects of geography. A number of things. Robert Kagan's book, Paradise and Power, this idea that in Europe we've created paradise. I mean, you know, he's not foolish enough to think that it's, you know, all honey and um, sugar and manna from heaven. But compared to most parts of the world, we live in paradise. Yeah. And the rest of the world is the world of power. And you shouldn't mix up what you can do with the rule of law and everything in the world of paradise with what you can do out there in the world of power. It was quite an influ- had quite an influence on me. And there was The Revenge of Geography by Robert Kaplan. Again, that sort of view of the world and, and other things. And I just thought I could do this. I suppose the, the only real light bulb moment was just looking at Russia. Just look at that map and keep looking at it and keep looking at it. And then inject all the things you know about Russia and how cold it is and how warm it is and how big it is and its history. And I just thought, there it is right there. That is the best example in the world of how geography determines to a great extent, but not entirely, what happens. And it all just flowed flowed from that, really. Then the challenge was, well, which areas do you pick? And I I left out Australia and was roundly abused, nicely, by Australians (laughs) for it. No, so I came came up with this formula, case study, which is a chapter. Start with the geography. Once you've explained that, explain the connections between that and then what happened, the history. And then put on top, layer on top of that, the the current affairs. And when you've got the, that foundation, the current affairs become easier to put in into context. And it is a formula that clearly worked, and, and I've repeated it in in the new book, but also in, in in other books as well. Yeah, I think it works really well. And well, obviously, in, in the first book, you picked out some of the probably the most obvious cases to look at, you know, to Russia, China, etc. But was there any sort of criteria that you know led you to pick out pick certain ones? Or was it just that these are the ones that are really driving? What's going on globally? Yeah, the or, latter. Yeah, it, yeah. it was the big players. Mm. And then I was conscious that, you know, although let's say uh, Chad is not a big player, uh, or indeed Namibia, it would be unfair to leave out large sections of the world. And so I did have to condense the entire continent of Africa into one chapter, ditto Latin America. But So I wanted to get these big geographic areas in Russia, China, India, Pakistan, USA with a nod at Canada, continent of Latin America, continent of Africa, and um, just just get those big players in. Whereas the new book, Power of Geography, it goes down a level to the second tier. Mm. And when you were writing it, I mean, was there anyone in particular you would think you you were trying to aim at? No, I'm not capable. I don't have the depth of knowledge, the style, or indeed the language. Because, you know, I mean, people that do MAs and PhDs, they actually do have to use certain types of language they cannot use casual phrases. And I, I'm simply not capable of doing that. So it wasn't a sort of active choice that I will write a generalist book. I didn't have a choice. It was the only book I could, could write. And, you know, I do believe 
get it out there and see who, who wants it. And I've been gratified that there have been eminent historians at some of the top universities that have, have said nice things about it. Uh, Peter Frankopan's been very complimentary, for example. I know John Bew, who now in Downing Street has uh, perhaps skimmed a few pages, and others. And then I get letters from, uh, well, emails, from 15-year-old geography students. You know, so there's quite a spectrum there. So, yeah, my generalist approach was writing in general for a general audience of wherever they come from. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, um, and it works really well because I think so many people take away things from it that they probably don't expect, you know, when they start reading it. Was there anything in there, you know, in any of these books that you, you sort of, as you were researching and writing about that actually surprised you? And you know, especially given you've traveled um, probably a lot of these places as well. And, you know, you've seen a lot of them. Yeah. Um, I, I, but, on my desk, yeah. I keep um, one of those map, which is a map of the world. And I always, at the points like this, look down at it for inspiration. <laughs> Yes, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, you learn a lot when you're doing the research. I mean, a number of things spring to mind. One, until I did the research, I wasn't aware of the concept of Latin America as the hollow continent. And, you know, just how many people cling to this day to the rim of it and not to the interior. Again, that's in broad brush. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I wrote the book about walls, a book called Divided, the spark for that was reading this stat that 65 countries now had walls or barriers between them and their neighbours, which is a third of all the countries in the world. And I suddenly thought, hang on, how does that fit into globalisation? And so yeah. that you know, there's a book right there. You know, what is happening and why is it happening? I learned something the other day. I haven't actually checked if it's true. If you're in the West Midlands, let's say in West Bromwich, looking eastwards, what's the nearest mountain range? And apparently it's the Urals in a straight line. Wow. <laughs> I haven't checked this okay. because apparently if you go in a straight line across, you do go across the North European plain, which is flat. Wow. And so if you go through that gap where the Carpathians end in Poland and you're going in that straight line, then yeah, the next proper mountain range is actually the Urals. So just little things like that always spark yeah. my attention. I'll try and give you one more um, example. Oh, again, just the starkness of, of the lack of water in Australia. I mean, you know, it's something I think we all know. We just, it's one of those things you just know. There's not a great deal of water in Australia. But when I went and actually looked into it properly about where the river systems are, which of course is exactly where the people are, 85% of them live in that arc on the right-hand side of Australia, as we look at it on the map. So, yeah, you know, in, in each country, I was learning little things. The Flags book, which isn't about flags, really. It's about nationalism and identity called Worth Dying For. Just, a, well, every single flag had a fantastic story to tell that, you know, most of them right. I didn't know. Like the Ethiopian flag goes back to the alleged union in a biblical sense of um, King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And allegedly their son was the first emperor of, of Ethiopia. Hence why, during Haile Selassie's reign, there was the Lion of Judah in the middle of the Ethiopian flag. I mean, I just love stuff like that. I'm a nerd. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I think we all are. I mean, it's what we have in common, I guess. And, um, <laughs> you know, there was there were so many little snippets in the books that I, as I was reading through them that surprised me and some that still stand out in my mind. And one one that just came to mind was when you were talking about the, the distance in, you know, on maps. It was, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I seem to remember written that Beijing is actually geographically nearer to Warsaw than yeah. it is to Australia. Yeah, it, it's useful, you know, if you bother to stop and think, well, what, what does that actually mean? Because it, it isn't just that, you know, in a straight line, it's closer to Warsaw. When you then think it through, you get a much better idea that China's got a 360 degree view of the world. Mm. 
Whereas, let's be honest, in Australia, of course, everybody has a 360 degree view. But if you're focusing, Australia only focuses pretty much to its north. Whereas somewhere like China has to have a 360 degree focus a lot of the time. I mean, the UK, again, our focus is pretty much south, east and east because of where we are on the map, because on to the west, there's a lot of water. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, little facts like that. A, they're sort of, oh, that's interesting. And then when you go into what it means, it becomes even more interesting. Yeah, and, and you mentioned your book about walls and barriers coming up between countries. This is something I've certainly noticed over the, the years, you know, since I, I sort of started my career. And, you know, I remember being a student in the late 90s. And maybe that was, a I don't know, we've talked about golden eras already, but that felt like a bit of a golden age because you could, you know, I spent a fair bit of time in the Middle East and it felt really easy to travel around. And it was sort of in that yeah. window, probably between the Oslo Accords and 9-11 happening. Pretty much the only places you wouldn't go is if you were a Brit, well, you weren't allowed into Libya. Algeria, I think, was still going through a phase of political violence in in the mid to late 90s but the rest of the region it was really easy to travel around you know you could yeah. buy a bus ticket in egypt that would take you all the way to istanbul without and, worrying um, that someone's made a phone call having seen you and exactly. two hours up the road someone's gonna have a quiet word with you yeah exactly. it was yeah. it was yeah. uh, it feels like certainly since yeah. then do you think 9-11 was the sort of big catalyst for that in terms of a lot yeah. of what's happened oh, yeah, since definitely. then and walls coming out up. between countries it opened up the Pandora's box. It was a jar already because, you know, I sometimes think when it comes to 9-11, people think it was year zero. You can make a fist of that argument, but let's face it, I think it, things like the USS Cole had already been attacked and there'd already been various mass slaughters in Egypt prior to that by um, ideologues. But yeah, let's face it, 2001 mm. is when it really took off. And... Of course, the invasion of Iraq, <clears throat> which further flamed passions all over the place. And yeah, you know, it doesn't really show too many signs of settling down yet. But I think it's not as bad as it was <clears throat> four or five years ago. But it's still a, a volatile part of the world, sadly. You know, there's no real starting point in history. You know, you can make arguments that, well, I would. That the, at the end of the Cold War, of course, is a marker in history. And then flowing from it, there are so many things, and I think you can even place 9-11 within that, that, you know, the end of the Cold War opened up all these different scenarios and areas and conflicts that had been frozen were then allowed to simmer and then some of them boil over. And then, and then you throw in 9-11 all that. And, you know, we, we are still living through the post-Cold War era and mm. the how unsettled it has made us. I'm arguing very loosely in the book and more cogently elsewhere that I think we are heading back to a new bipolar world. I only use the phrase because it's useful to frame an idea. I'm not arguing it will be the same as the previous bipolar, nor will it will be the same as the, the Cold War. But I think there will be a, I think there is a form of Cold War. And I think we're heading towards a bipolar world. I, I, you don't know if you've seen the latest copy of Foreign Affairs magazine, the quarterly. I haven't actually. No. It's very gratifying when something you've been banging on for about a year suddenly appears as the lead story in Foreign Affairs. But, but there's two eminent American scholars basically saying it's a Cold War now. Interesting. I do sometimes, though, feel that it's unhelpful when, for example, you hear voices in the US government frame China as a threat. When really it's a competitor. It's a, it's a competition. It's a rivalry. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be going for a long time. Yeah. Calling I, them a threat, I don't think I does agree everyone, with you. Um, you know, it does anyone any favours. No, I mean, it's one thing for someone like me to call it a Cold War, which, yeah. uh, again, I, I do think you can make a fist of it. But mm. 
but it's not helpful at that level when it is taken in Beijing as a threat. Because, yeah, I mean, the language did change, didn't it? It went from strategic competitor to strategic threat in some circles. And that is a very, very different thing. And I'm not sure just how much of a global threat China is. I think it's a regional threat, and I think it is a threat to the international sea lanes in its part of the world. And I think if they are broken, that does endanger freedom of navigation everywhere. Mm. But, you know, they're not ideologues. They're not communists. They don't want everyone to think the way they do. They don't want to go and take vast swathes of territory. They want to take a little bit of territory that they think is theirs anyway. So, yeah, I mean, this is what I mean. It's it's not the same as the previous Cold War. But in conceptual terms, to try and tell us where we're going, as long as you then go into the detail, I mean, you perhaps we could we, we disagree, but I think they're useful broad brush terms. Yeah, true, true. I think there is that. I think it's just indicative of also people's perspectives and how they see the issue and, you know, the language that they use to describe it. And we are going to live through, well, hopefully live through this. Uh, it's a coming era, which, as you said, it's a bipolar world, because I think a lot of people are talking about it being multipolar. Yes. No, I think it's multipolar at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I, I completely yeah. agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know, it went bipolar, unipolar. We're, we're deep into multipolar now. But I just think that that will, because, you know, you could you could argue that the previous bipolar world was a multipolar world at the same time in that there were all these actors on each side, but they coalesced around one side or the other. And I think that that is exactly what will happen again. And I think you're seeing that already with what this Biden's idea of the not the West, but the, the advanced democracies binding together in various forms. But they are all binding together under the umbrella of the Americans and the very few friends that China has or those that it is bullied into being its friends, ditto. So in what I believe will be a bipolar world, yes, of course, there's still that space underneath it for multiple actors, but at a, at a global level, I think it is still split into two. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you talked about globalization a little bit. You touched on that a bit earlier, and especially with walls coming up between countries and maybe whether, you know, I'm sure people would, would debate whether we're in a retreat from global, globalization, mm. whether it was a myth in the first place. But in your career, sort of traveling around the world, I mean, did you find it was getting harder and harder to get access to certain places? And, you know, what did that mean for you as a journalist, perhaps? Was that was that ever an issue? Because I know for a lot of journalists, it's, it seems to be getting um, harder to find it, out what's going on in different parts of the world. It wasn't really. Well, we always had trouble getting into Iran. I went three or four times. It was six, seven months' work mm-hmm. by a, a dedicated producer, Kelvin O'Shea, who used to just, just, he knew how things worked. You know, he would go for tea at midnight. He would, <laughs> you know, spend endless hours. That's what often what it takes to get into places like that, to get your visa, journalist visas. North Korea, I failed. I never did that. But no, I don't think it was, apart from those two, it wasn't particularly difficult to, to, to get into places and, and to move around. And I don't think I saw a particular hardening of attitudes until really, I think the Arab uprisings, that hardened a lot of people's attitudes. There's a timeline here, James, um, I think which starts in Bosnia. It's slightly a different subject, forgive me, but there is a mm. connection. In Bosnia, that was the first war where overtly journalists were targets and were seen as taking sides. And I think there's a connection there with the advent of satellite television, because we were aware in Bosnia that all three sides were watching the reports 
that we put out. And then later on in the Kosovo war, I remember every night when I was reporting from Belgrade or Kosovo, whatever report I did was then retransmitted on Serbian television with, with voiceovers, not always accurately. And you began to become seen as a player as opposed to a reporter. And then that, I think, has, has worsened uh, and got more acute. Um, and, and journalists from, let's say, Al Jazeera or TRT or where, BBC, wherever you're from, you're increasingly seen as they must be spies or they are the mouthpiece of the government or, or whatever, mm. which in one or two cases is uh, not too far from the truth. So I'm trying to connect this back. I think that that is that is really interesting because that you've almost sort of then given us the the build up to the area that we're in now where yeah. you're you're starting to get the politicization of news and, and politicians yes. talking about fake news and dismissing certain yes. outlets out of hand and and not willing to talk to certain outlets etc and you think actually there's probably now that's engendered probably amongst the audience you know, ordinary yes. people yes so I this, was gonna, yeah. idea yeah. of well, actually we don't well, should we trust these people yeah you're right bang up to date with i don't know michael gove getting harassed in the street basically. yeah but mm. the reason i mentioned the arab uprisings which i don't call the arab spring always hated mm. that phrase is that it just seemed to become so acute then and what you had then was in syria arab journalists from a certain country if they're from egypt or they're from saudi or they're from qatar or whatever are immediately seen by one faction as the enemy you know, irrelevant of what they're reporting and what they're doing. And it just got so much more acute. And of course, that was because of the power plays that were going on throughout the Middle East by the Arab governments. And it just made things worse and worse. And then you bring it all the way up to the present. And then you've got politicians like Trump egging people on and talking about fake news, which, you know, despite being a Trumpian phrase, is used now by people that loathed him, but the, he has got inside their heads rent free. <laughs> and he's influenced them to go yeah. down the very road that he beat the path down, which is kind of ironic. Yeah, it's it's a huge problem. I think the mainstream has to have more confidence in what it does. And I think you just have to keep getting that message across, especially to a younger audience, teach critical thinking mm. and teach people to under, to try to say, well, where does this news come from? And what are the checks and balances in it and all the rest of it? And you will find nine times out of ten that the mainstream media, for all the derision that's heaped upon it, is where the real action and credibility is. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I mean, teaching critical thinking to, to younger uh, analysts, younger generations, school kids, etc. That's one of the drums that I've, I've been banging for a, a long time because it's one of the things that we've even found in you know our field where we look at mostly intelligence and working with national security and government clients around the world. But the people who are coming into those roles as analysts, finding it difficult and challenging, mm. increasingly challenging to sift the information they're looking at and figure out well, what do I believe, what don't I believe, what is more reliable, what is less reliable. And I think in the past, when I started doing this, probably you know, we were doing that type of training 10 years ago or so, people probably thought, you know, when you talk to them about assessing reliability of your sources, a lot of people just sort of switched off and they thought, well, that's easy. We know how to do that. That's that's not a problem. And then as we've gone on and we've gone through the last decade, it's actually become more and more challenging. And people mm. are now sort of asking, OK, well, give us more advice on that. Let's talk a bit more about that. How do we actually do that? Is there a system? Is there a way in which we can just discover the reliable information that's out there? But I mean, it's just down to assessing every every PCC. But actually, you know, as you said, and we always come back to, well, sometimes it is about just going back to those mainstream news sources if you want to find out what's going on, because they may have the more factual detail. And, they have um, their issues, their problems. Some yeah. of them have their, their take on things, you know, mm -hmm. 
which um, I don't like, but um, mm. in newspapers it's more acceptable than it, than it is in broadcasting. But, you know, even with those biases that they have, you know, we know that The Guardian is left of centre, fine. We know that The Telegraph is right of centre, fine. But in both of those places, you will find a genuine attempt to get to the bottom of things and present them as they are. And a reluctance, sacred duty, you could almost argue, not to just grab holy lies and inject them into it to prove your point. You don't get that in the mainstream media, but you do get it in all these, many of these these other forums. And that's because they are approaching it from the worldview that my view is right and needs to be promulgated and your view is wrong and must be completely stamped on. And therefore I am justified for the greater good to put my lies front and center. There is a worrying trend, I think, in parts of mainstream journalism that there is a worldview and you must approach the story from that worldview, which I don't like. And I don't like it when I see reporters without much experiencing experience saying things like, you know, in my view or... I, I, mm. That seems to scared. have crept in a lot over the last yeah. few years. And, and I've, I've shouted at telly a number of times recently when I, I've heard very good journalists, but they'll say things to a, a politician, which is clearly their opinion, the reporter's opinion. There was one recently, and I won't name it because there's no point in just stirring up unpleasantness, but they said to the Prime Minister, you have brought shame on the party because of whatever it was. Now, you might think that, and the way around, the way to do that is to say, some people in your party or member have said that you have brought shame. That's all you need to do. Just yeah. put that barrier, because that is true. Some people had said that. But for a journalist, a broadcast journalist, to say you have brought shame, I think just doesn't cross a line it drives a tank through it yeah yeah and uh, do you think that's part of a a broader trend though where news outlets are asking their journalists to provide their take on things because they've got to differentiate themselves from their competitors yes yeah good point i hadn't thought of it in those terms Uh, i mean i i was encouraged often to put more of myself into a piece and and i usually i tried not to but that was more to create um, this personality that you know and trust not to say, you know, I think Das Capital was the greatest book ever written or whatever. I think that, that is a danger. I, I think when you get to a certain level, when you really are experienced and you are one of the top people in your field, John Simpson perhaps might be an example, when you are, a, you know, an editor, I think it is acceptable to say, what's your take on this new policy by? And as long as the journalist then doesn't say, well, this policy is wrong and needs to be scrapped. But if they can say, well, you know, as I assess it and I look back at the history, you can see that this happened. You know, to give a take is okay. Mm. To give an opinion about right and wrong, unless you're talking about the liberation of Auschwitz, some other extreme Mm -hmm. example, you shouldn't be going there. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that it irritates you as well, though, when there's a sort of a stretched attempt sometimes to present balance on issues? Yeah, you know, that's a it, really difficult mm, one, though, isn't it? Because, yeah. Because COVID skeptics, for example, or, mm-hmm. or vaccination skeptics, is you know, for mm-hmm. one of the new examples, there are at least hundreds of thousands of people who are skeptical. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that it, in my view, it is anti-science, mm-hmm. do you give 50-50 balance to that? You know, do you have an hour-long program with two people who each get equal time when? And if, if you do, I mean, do you go into the um, the percentages? Ah, oh, well, in this country, 6% of people believe this, so we'll give them 6% of the time. I mean, it's a minefield. 
I'm not sure you can have hard and fast rules for it. Yeah, sorry. I mean, you've identified the problem, and I'm far from having a solution. To well, it. yeah, no, I don't think anyone does, but it, it seems like it's all. Yeah, it, it's a, it's certainly a current issue. I think where, where more and more people are noticing. I mean, coming back to your your books and thinking about you know geography and, and the role it plays, do you think actually some of the issues we've experienced recently, things like COVID, things like the supply chain issues we've seen, mm-hmm. those have made geography a lot more real for people who maybe hadn't really paid much attention to it uh, yeah. until then yeah supply lines especially i mean you know, a bunch of little stuff like if last summer you were waiting for your garden furniture to arrive and then you found out that it's sitting on a dock in shanghai <laughs> in a container because covid a meant the workforce weren't making them or taking them to the dock side or that the shops had shut here and we weren't ordering, you know, all, all that supply chain thing. And the recent example in Felixstowe, when we, for whatever reason, did not have the HGV drivers. Yeah, I, I think that sparks people's awareness of geography and interconnectedness. At the geopolitical level, I also think COVID has accelerated so many trends. I don't think it's a massive world game changer if, you look, if you're looking over the span of a century. Of course, it's uh, hugely influential at the moment, and, and the ramifications will be felt for several years. But I don't think it's, you know, historic game changer. I think it's accelerated existing trends. One of them was already globalization was at least slowing, mm-hmm. and we were already becoming aware of the dangers of a, of a pretty much a single supply chain, China. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were already looking at how to diversify, and you know, Mexico and Vietnam and places were beginning to undercut China. And I think COVID has accelerated that. Other things, just as asides, to this day, I think it's 85% of global trade by volume travels by sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, you do find people that say, well, technology means that geography isn't important anymore. <laughs> and they are completely wrong. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, indeed. Um, I mean, I think it's it's nice that it helps more people work from home, but um, <laughs> yeah, well, that, no, that, that big, was already very slowly happening. Yeah, it was, and it's yeah. accelerated it. Yeah, and it'll be fascinating if you can wave a, wave a magic wand and in twelve months' time it's over. Yeah, you know, I'm making these figures up, but let's say five percent of people work from home, and now let's say it's fifty percent of people. I cannot believe that after my magic wand is waved, it will remain at 50%. The only question is how close back to 5% does it go? Yeah. I mean, because I think there will be a significant move back. But even if you went back to 10%, and forgive me for just making up these ballpark figures, but the, 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 sort of fig, the point I'm trying to make is that even if it went back to 10% and you had double the amount of home working, yeah, that's what I mean about it accelerating uh, an existing trend. Yeah, that makes sense. No, definitely. You touched in the power geography on issues like climate change and, and talking about solar energy and how that would have an impact on power relations between different countries. What do you see coming next, though? Is there, is there something you're now thinking about, you're mulling over, you know, that you're maybe going to write about next? Or what's the what's what's sort of the future well, uh, in the short term to medium well, term? Well, things I'm worried about right now, not that it makes any odds whether I'm worried or not, but... And then there's, there's one or two things that are coming up in the future which fascinate me. Um, climate change uh, is, is pushing people to move, and it's pushing poverty, which is pushing people to move, and it pushes conflict, which pushes people to move. And it is a vicious circle, or a, the, the three things are interconnected. And given that the projections are that, A, we won't hit our targets by 2030 or 2050, the problems are going to probably become exacerbated, and therefore... The pressures 
exacerbated and therefore the movement of peoples increased with the concurrent knock-on effect on, on politics everywhere you know whether it's Indian nationalism because of so many Bangladeshis coming over the border, Bangladeshi nationalism because so many people from Myanmar coming over their border, or European nationalism going over, you know, wherever it is, I just, I think that hasn't peaked and, and, and I find that very, very worrying. Um, you know, I'm well aware of our need for um, migration and, and to sustain the population and grow it and fulfill all the jobs that are going to be doing in the inverted age pyramid that we have but if we if we don't do it in a manageable sustainable manner i worry about the effect on our politics mm. and everybody else's you know you've, you've you've seen what's happened in germany 85 what i would regard as extreme right wingers in the parliament yeah. in afd ditto places like sweden in fact right across the continent we we have so far comparatively not gone down that road you can't say that we not might not mm. so that, that that's the current thing that uh, bothers me looking into the future um, i'm filled with um, hope and wonder about technology i think it's mm. i think it's going to be fantastic i think it's going to solve just as just as technology has solved so many of our problems already um, like in this country clean water or uh, inoculations against various diseases yeah you know, i mean a list as long as your arm. Mm. I just think that technology will continue to do that and continue to provide solutions to our problems, as well as <laughs> bringing new challenges <clears throat> and, you know, hypersonic missiles or, or whatever. Yeah. So that's the, the, the bit in the future that I'm trying to think about more and more is technology and its effect on us, including and perhaps especially in space. I mean, as you know, there's a chapter on space in the new book mm. because I view it as, as a geographic area. Yeah. which has to be viewed just as you view geography on Earth. You need to conceptualize this uh, space out there in geographic terms of distance, how long to send a message. I mean, there's all sorts of things like in future. Sorry, I'm bouncing around the ideas, but that's, that's where I am at the moment. We've always known about comms in communications in, in defense, in, in warfare. Mm -hmm. We used to have three days to make up our minds about things, and then it was a day, and then it was a telephone call, and now now the decision's already made because modern technology and um, events have already happened, dear boy. Yeah. In the, in the future, we're going to have to sort of think about things like, well, you're up near Mars, and that's, I don't know what it is, let's say it's seven minutes away, mm -hmm. and they're up near Mars as well, and there's been a bit of, I'm afraid our two spaceships have bumped into each other, and um, I've got seven minutes to get my message back and tell you about it, and another seven minutes before you, t so I've got to wait 14 minutes you know, just, just little yes, things like yeah, that. I, yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, exploring and because I do see it very, very much in geopolitical or rather now astropolitical terms. And uh, I just think it's an exciting area for people that do more. You do mm. specialists in defense to be looking at. Oh, well, I mean, you've hit on what is pretty much one of the major growth areas, if not the major growth area, I think, in defence and security at the moment, which is looking at space and understanding how things will work and what the dynamics will be and what the technology will allow us to do, what, you know, and as you described, the challenges. Of and the treaties, well. which which I yes. argue we don't have. Yeah. But, you know, they don't mm. exist. People say mm. they exist, but if they're not ratified, which they weren't, they don't really exist. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. Well, a lot, to, a lot for us to ponder and think about. But I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about most things. I've really got to say yeah. that. You know, <laughs> no, seriously, you know, you only 400 years ago or now, 200 years ago or now, 100 well, years ago yeah. or now, 
now. Yeah. And probably, yeah. if you if you ask that same question in 400 years, it'll, it'll still be now as in 400 years' time. Yeah, and I'm sure anyone who remembers the UK in the 70s probably says now as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it is a much better much better place for all the many things that I could list that's yes. wrong with it. <laughs> but is it, what's, what's also slightly interesting is you touched on your book about football chants. And yeah. I was thinking about the, the takeover of Newcastle United recently. Mm. Seen, and the influence of foreign money that's coming into the game in the UK and Again, we're sort of, it's almost like your books are sort of neatly intersecting in that you're getting the, the geopolitics coming into the football. <laughs> and, we have foreign money in my um, club, Leeds, uh, Italian. And we love our owner. He is absolutely building a fa- a, the way a club should be built. But our manager, the, the Saint Marcello, as we call him, I agree with him. We need to find a way of actually getting money, reducing the money in the game. It'll make the game better. Putting more and more money into it does not make it better. No, that's true. Yeah, but interesting as well to see so what what some of these, uh, how some of these geopolitical rivalries might play out. I think um, as we <laughs> go forward through this season into next season. Yeah, um, I watched the Newcastle Spurs game. I mean, I knew in advance that there would be several hundred Geordies dressed up as Arabs. And I knew that the Spurs fans would sing things like they did, such as Halal the Lads, many other chant um, jokes, um, the Saudi boys instead of the Geordie boys, etc., etc. Most of it good-hearted. Um, it's problematic, isn't it? It, it? it really is problematic. Look, my, my club went to Myanmar on a pre-season tour about three years ago. They should never have done that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's been it's been fascinating talking to you. This has been a really interesting sort of journey around the work that you produced and some of the things that you've written about. And to get your thoughts on it, it's been been really interesting and to find out a little bit about what's driven that. Thanks, and, and I, I think... hope I hope the real experts aren't shouting too much <laughs> at their uh, at their uh, podcast device. No, I, th- I think that I, I'd hope, like me, uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily cast myself an expert, but I'd hope, like me, anyone who's working in this space and people listening would appreciate the work you produce because it really helps i think get Thank get you. an understanding across the people who you know as i mentioned we, we often find you'll have analysts who have to rotate every couple of years around mm. different desks that they they monitor and um that they have to work on and they may know nothing previous to that about that particular topic that country etc and so yeah the, the, these are always ones that I, I i sort of recommend to people and say well this will give you a very quick way of getting up to speed on all the key points and then you can sort of delve into the the depth from there really Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. No, thanks for your time. It's been been great. And um, yeah, thanks for joining us. And I'm, I'm sure the audience will have appreciated it. Thanks for joining us this week on the World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.